Can you hear me? Oh, good. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you all. Thank you so much for being here this morning. And thank you especially that the words, if you were listening to them, were quite appropriate to my message this morning. My message this morning, I initially entitled my sermon as the assurance of our salvation, but I thought, no, let's change it quickly. It is really the assurance of Christ's salvation, with emphasis on what Christ has done to give us that assurance. And maybe begin with the text, and then I'll begin with the little story that happened to me recently. My text this morning says this. It's found in John 5, verse 24, and it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is saying truly, truly, it's got to be true. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Passed from death into life now. Early August... I had gone away for a week uh, to a trip to Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, and there I had the privilege of being with my fellow chaplains, fellow Adventist chaplains who serve both in the military and in the hospitals as well. All the other previous meetings that I've gone to have strictly been for military chaplains. So when we do that, we do military stuff, talk military stuff. But this time we had the hospital chaplains. And so I remember it was one morning I was sitting and I was talking, conversing with one of the hospital chaplains. And he raised a really good question that um, we don't get to see too often in the military, but in the hospital you do. He, he asked the question of those of us that were there. He said, who do you think deals with death better? Of the various types of patients that he, that he ministers to, he was comparing non-Adventists but Christians with Adventists when they're at the point of death. They're dying in the hospital. Who deals with that moment better? I had my suspicions. I'm sure you've got yours. So, now, keep in mind... There's no right or wrong answer because how you deal with death is subjective to how you deal with death at that moment. So feel free, you know, raise your hands because I'm going to ask you a question. In that conversation, how many of you think or would have answered that other Christians do better in death? How many of you think so? Okay, just a few. Okay. Okay. How many of you think Adventists do better at the moment of death? Raise your hand. Okay, I got more on that end, right? And how many just don't know? <laughs> okay. The answer that he gave us was surprisingly but not surprisingly. The non-Adventists dealt better with the moment of death. Thinking, Wow. But yet we understand what happens at death, don't we? We understand that when a person dies, you don't go to heaven right away. We're waiting for the resurrection of Jesus or of our bodies when Jesus comes, right? 
We don't believe in immortal spirits that depart, and we see all the terrible things happening to our loved ones still here on earth. That wouldn't be heaven. So why is it that we do not do as well at that moment? And I think the missing ingredient is because I think many of us struggle with the fact that we don't quite understand God's grace. Grace. How do I rectify the fact that I am a sinner and can still be saved? How can I rectify when Jesus says in Scripture, be ye perfect? When I'm reminded by Paul in Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How can I rectify the two? There's only one answer, brothers and sisters, and that's God's limitless grace. I want you to turn to Scripture with me, if you have your Bibles with me, and I'm going to give you some examples. Some examples so incredible, you may not believe it, but believe it. It's in the Bible. Trust me, I'll give you the text if you need them. So let's turn to our first example. First person that I want to look at <clears throat> is Job. If you study the book of Job, you understand that Job did not see himself as a perfect man, did he? In fact, in chapter 3, he says how he, uh, he abhors himself. He hates himself. He hates the day that he was born. He curses the day that he was born. And later on in the book, he says this, which I find quite interesting. He says this. He says that he is a sinner that needs salvation. I abhor myself and I repent in dust. He repented in dust. Was Job a perfect man? But if you turn to chapter 1 of the book of Job... What did God say about Job? To Satan. Have you seen my servant Job? Upright, righteous, fears me. In the eyes of God, he's what? Perfect. Job says, I hate myself. I'm here lying in ashes and dust because I know I'm innocent of any wrong toward God, but yet I'm repenting. In fact, his friends tried to make him repent, didn't they? Job couldn't remember what he did wrong. That's what grace does too, doesn't it? Helps you forget. God forgets it, why shouldn't I? What do I need to remind myself of that? That's the devil's job, isn't it? Why should I do it for him? God said he was perfect. In his eyes. So I ask the question. If I as a sinner. If you as sinners. We all as sinners come before God. We know we've done wrong in our lives. We haven't lived this perfect week have we? Or maybe even this perfect morning. But yet I've come to God in repentance and sorrow. 
How does God now see me? How does God now see you? As though you had never sinned. Why? Because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He takes my sins. He takes your sins and he takes your place as a sinner. Let's go to another example. This one I found really incredible. So incredible, I have to read, I have to read, I hate to read in my sermons, but I have to read part of what Ellen White said about it. And I have, uh, if Celeste is here, I don't know if she's here, but I have heard a thank for, for reading this to me before, uh, a couple of months back, and it just came to my mind again. But you recall that there was also the story of Moses. In, Mo in Numbers 20, verses 11 and 12, we're reminded there that Moses struck the rock twice and that he had sinned against God. In verse 12, he says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And so we know that from that incident, Moses and Aaron were both denied entry into the promised land. Here's a question. Did Moses sin? Yes. Instead of speaking to the rock, as God had instructed him to do that time, he hit the rock. And not just once, but twice. Uh-oh, theological no-no. And on top of that, to make matters worse, he got mad at the people and he said, do you expect Aaron and myself to bring you water? Oops. Do you expect me and Aaron to bring you water? I got a question for you. Who was bringing the water? It was God. But in that declaration, Moses had sinned. Because the Bible says that Moses gave glory to himself and not to God. And it was that one sin that marred the perfect record of Moses that denied him entry into the promised land. Let me share with you some quotes from Ellen White. Take it from Patriarchs and Prophets, because I think it really uh, shows the ends that God will go to to justify His children. I'm going to throw something out there that some of you might not be comfortable with, with the thought, but just listen to me. There are times when I've repented as a sinner. When you repented as a sinner, and as with Moses, I will show you shortly, God actually makes excuses for you why you sinned. If you find that hard to believe, you're not the only one. You mean God, what I'm saying, preacher, is God is telling you and me that God will actually excuse when I do wrong. And make excuses why? Now, I don't know about you, but if you're a parent, do you really, do you like it when your children give you excuses why they did wrong? Do you? No. But what if the parent's giving the excuse? Well, that's a different twist, isn't it? Let me read to you what Sister White says. 
And bear with me, please. I don't really like to read, but this I have to share with you. Again, this is from Patriarchs and Prophets. And I'll just kind of summarize some of it, and then I'll read the portion I really want to get to. But she makes the point that Moses had marred himself with that one sin in failing to give glory to God. And that Satan had exalted at his success, get this, in causing Moses to sin against God. And thus to come under the the dominion of death. And now for the first time, Christ, the Prince of Life, she calls him was to come and raise someone from the dead. This had never happened before in history. Now was a battle between the two superpowers, between Christ, the giver of life, and Satan, the giver of death. And who won that battle? It was Christ. Let me read to you what she accounts for with that, what she says about that. She says this, Remember, this is about us as sinners, not so much about Moses, but us. Remember that. Satan, he declared that even Moses was not able to keep the law of God, which is true. He sinned. That he had taken to himself the glory due to Jehovah, the very sin which had caused Satan's banishment from heaven. And by transgression had come under the dominion of Satan, the arch traitor reiterated the original charges that he had made against the divine government and repeated his complaints of God's injustice toward him. This is Satan now. Christ did not stoop to enter into controversy with Satan. Listen to this. Catch this. He might have brought against him, against Satan, the cruel work of his deceptions that he had done in heaven, causing the ruin of vast numbers of its inhabitants. He might have pointed to the falsehoods told in Eden that had led to Adam's sin and brought death upon the human race. He might have reminded Satan that it was his own work in tempting Israel to murmur and complain and rebel which had wearied the long-suffering patience of their leader. And in an unguarded moment, how many of us have been there? Unguarded moments. In an unguarded moment, had surprised him into sin, for which he had fallen under the power of death. But Christ referred to all his fathers, saying, The Lord rebuke you. Satan had no controversy with Christ. He thought he did, but he didn't. Did you catch what Ellen White was sharing with us about this battle? God was excusing who? Moses. And where did he put the blame? It's right on Satan. Follow me. Moses sinned, did he not? Yes. But who did God blame? Satan. Because of you, Satan, he did what he did. You caused them to complain, and my servant fell into sin because of you. Now follow me. Use your name in that place. Put your name because of whatever your name is. 
Satan caused you to do whatever your sin was. And who has no sin on them now? You. Do you follow me? I hope you do. God is excusing your shortcomings. When we have to beat ourselves all the time because I've fallen, I've sinned, I've fallen short of God's glory, God excuses you and puts the blame back on who? On Satan. Why do we insist on giving him a free pass every time we do something wrong? He doesn't deserve it. He caused me to sin. He caused you to sin. That's how God sees it. And if God puts the blame and the sin back on Satan, then who does not carry it anymore? You don't anymore. You're free and clean in Christ. There's no condemnation for you. God has put it where it rightfully belongs. And Jesus died for that sin already on the cross. That's the powerful, unbounding grace that God does for us. So he even goes so far as to excuse us. Wow, that's amazing grace. It's amazing grace. So how does God deal with us? Let me just read some verses to you because I want to give you some points of encouragement. How does God deal with me and you? If you have your Bibles, turn with me. Hebrews 2.14. I'll give you a little time to get there. If you get there, say amen so I know somebody's there. Hebrews 2.14. All right, Amen. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity. This is referring to Christ. So that through death, he could what? Destroy the one who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Verse 15. And do what? Set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. We don't have to be afraid of that moment when it comes because we know that God's grace covers all our sins. I was engaged in a conversation earlier this week with a co-worker. She's not an Adventist, but even she and I got into a little bit of a discussion of this. She was sharing how she got into a discussion that she had with another friend of hers, another co-worker. And the discussion went like this. What do you think would happen to me if I had gotten into an argument with my husband, they're both women, and I didn't repent and I died that night, what would happen? What do you think would happen? That's what they're discussing. And the other one said, well, you better repent because if you don't, you're probably going to be lost. And the other lady that I was actually talking to said, didn't agree with that notion. And I had the chance to remind her of how good God's grace is. You see, brothers and sisters, I believe that if I should commit some sin this very day, 
And if I should die this very day without the chance of repenting, I believe that I am still saved because God's grace covers all my sins and all yours. And if the act of repentance is what saves me, then salvation is not by grace. It is now by what? Works. Because it's upon myself to save myself. So don't be discouraged, my friends. Satan wants you to bear the guilt all your life. Don't do it. Don't do it. Remind him of his guilt and where he's going. One more text. 1 John 1, 9. Many of you are probably familiar with this text. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what else? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us. We are clean. John 5, 12 to 14 says this. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You have eternal life. Let me just close my sermon with one more personality. And that is Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 shows us where Daniel was praying and he was repenting. It's Daniel 9.16. If you have your Bibles, look there. Check for yourself. Daniel 9.16. He was praying for the sins of Israel and for his own sins. He included himself as a sinner. You got it, Al? You got it? Not yet? Who's got it? Someone got it? Okay, who said amen? Can you read it for us? Read out loud. Who wants to read it for us? I love volunteers. Do you want to read it? Who said me? <laughs> okay, no volunteers this time. That's fine. But you see it for yourself. He prayed. He included himself as a sinner, right? Now let me ask you this question. In the entire book of Daniel... Where do you find his sin? Tell me where in Scripture, in Daniel, it talks about the sin that Daniel did. Anywhere? Anyone? I don't have much money to give, but I'll, I'll, I'll wager on that one. Huh? Anywhere? No. The answer is no. You do not find a record of Daniel's sin. Yet, the Bible says that he was a sinner. He repented as well. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that there's no record of Daniel's sin? Why do you suppose? Perhaps because that is the way God sees Daniel. There's no record of sin because in the eyes of God, Daniel has no sin. So when we read the life of Daniel, we see a young man who became an old man and was perfect. 
That's grace. And when God looks at your life, when you've come to him and asked, forgive me for what I've done. You're relying on his grace and mercy. The lamb who died for you. How does he deal with you? He washes you clean. He forgives your sin. And he puts his son's robe of righteousness on you. And when he looks at you, he sees not the sinful person that you are. He sees the perfect son and daughter that you are now. And let's say I forget to repent and I die that day. Does God take off that robe? No. He keeps me clothed in his grace. God excuses my sin. He excuses our sin. He throws it back on the devil. And then he, he says, I'm innocent. I have no sin. Not because I say so, but because he says so. Take that to the bank. Because he said so. So let me close with this thought. In concluding. We can rest assured that God's power of grace is sometimes so beyond what we're able to comprehend that it sounds almost too good to be true. But the good news is, it is true. Jesus said, truly, truly. So it must be true. Though I am a sinner, though we are sinners, we can all rest assured that before God, we have no sin. We are righteous because we have Jesus as our lamb, that lamb who took away the sins of the world. That means you and me. May God bless you.